already know what some of you are thinking. It's like you get tickets to see the Lakers play the Golden State Warriors. You show up, LeBron James and Steph Curry are on the bench. You're like, what in the world? I bought tickets, I'm here, and I'm watching the subs play today. Because you see, you see Pastor Chris sitting there, and you're thinking, what is Joe doing walking up to the platform? Hey, I get it. It's exactly what it's like. I, I mean, that is 100% what it's like. I tell you, I'm excited because normally when, when I'm given an opportunity, um, Chris isn't here. And, and he's always good to listen to it. Um, but I am. I'm, I'm anxious to be able to, to preach to you today with him here, him to hear it. He's a good friend, and he will tell me at some point this week we'll sit down, and he'll say, hey, man, here's, here's what was really good, here's what was really confusing, here's what we need to work on next time, and I'm grateful for those things. And so um, today we're, we're going to jump right back in where you guys were last week uh, in, Second Corinthians, or in, yeah, in Second Corinthians. You can go ahead and turn there if you want to. Uh, I was gone last week preaching, got Chris's notes, heard what he talked about. Just kind of as a, of a quick review, a couple of weeks ago, two weeks ago, we had, Chris gave you kind of a general, general defense uh, that Paul was giving of his own character and his integrity. And then last week, a little bit more specific defense in relation to um, or in regard to him changing his, his travel plans and not showing up when people thought he was going to. And as we move into today's text and we continue on with that, I want to say a couple of things to start with. The first one is this. Um, I don't want you to think, we don't want you to think that this conflict that is going on that Paul's addressing is a result of a sin issue in Paul's life. Okay, That is not what has taken place here at all. Paul hasn't done anything sinful. That doesn't mean he's sinless. But there has been no moral failure on Paul's part. There has been no disqualifying sin in his life. If there was that type of sin issue, then the, the church at Corinth would have been absolutely right, would have had every reason to question his character. And I'm telling you this because we, Chris, Dylan, and I, we don't want you to think that Paul is saying, hey, I'm untouchable, I'm unaccountable, that that's the position he's coming from, and that we by default are saying we are untouchable or unaccountable, that we would ever point to Paul and what's gone on, on here and said, look, we're, we're unaccountable to this. That would be a really, really, really poor takeaway from last week, um, that somehow leaders are not accountable, because that's not true. And I will tell you this, if there is a moral failure in my life, right, a disqualifying sin, a moral failure in my life, you have a responsibility to hold me accountable for that. You absolutely can ask questions about my integrity if that's what goes on. But that's not what's happened here. That's not what's going on here. Paul is not trying to sweep some sin of his under the rug and have them ignored. He's done absolutely nothing wrong. The other thing I want to say before we look at the verses is this, and I was hesitant because I don't want this to come across wrong, but, but from reading this letter, I, I think it's necessary to say ministry is hard. It just is. Even when things are going really, really well, it's hard, and in this letter, we can see just how burdensome ministry can become and how quickly it can get that way. We were at the, um, the IBSA annual meeting this past Wednesday over at Marion, and one of the things that they made available to us were some resources 
um, resources for pastors to help them with, uh, with stresses in ministry. And I was reading through some of that information and I came across these numbers, um, just a survey of pastors and the statistics of this. Over the last year, this survey was done by a group called the Schaefer Institute. And it speaks to how difficult it is. It was, it was interesting to think about, it's sad. But it talked in there that, that 90% of the pastors they surveyed said that they, they are completely overwhelmed and fatigued on a daily or weekly basis. 80% um, of them said that they believe that ministry has somehow negatively affected their families. 70% of the pastors surveyed said they do not have anyone that they consider a close friend. It's sad. And 50% out of them, one out of every two, said that they would leave the ministry if they had another way of making a living because of the difficulties that come along with it. The only positive thing that, the, that they gave in these numbers, it's a low number, but they said 23% of the pastors they surveyed reported being happy and content in their identity in Christ, in their church, and in their home. Those are amazing numbers. I want to say, your pastors, we are a part of that 23%. We are. doesn't mean every day is a great day, but we are part of that 23%. But I will say this also, every pastor on that list at some point was part of that 23%. At some point, every one of them would have said, yeah, I'm perfectly content, um, but, but it's tough. And I'm not saying that to garner sympathy. I don't need your sympathy. We don't need your sympathy. Uh, but what I do need, what we need, and what Paul needed was the benefit of the doubt based upon his character and his testimony. Um, truth of the matter is, there are going to be times in our lives together where there's disappointment, there is unmet, unmet obligation, there's miscommunication between us and between you. And all I'm saying is when that happens, we ask for your grace. And we promise when that happens to extend you the same grace. Sadly, as we've already seen and we're going to see again today, Paul was not the recipient of that, that type of grace from many in Corinth. And so last week, um, after, after having digressed a little bit, Paul's going to resume, you'll see today, in his explanation of why he changed his plans on visiting. So let's take a look. We're going to start. I think it's good to read this together, even though it's a little more than we'll cover today. To start back in verse 15 of chapter 1, reading through verse 4 of chapter 2. So Paul writes, In this confidence I intended at first to come to you, so that you might twice receive a blessing, that is to pass your way into Macedonia, and again from Macedonia to come to you and by you to be helped on my journey to Judea. Therefore, I was not vacillating when I intended to do this, was I? Or, or what I purpose, do I purpose according to the flesh, so that with me there will be yes, yes and no, and no at the same time? But as God is faithful, our word to you is not yes and no. For the Son of God, Christ Jesus, who was preached among you by us, by me and Sylvanus and Timothy, was not yes and no, but is yes in him. For as many as are the promises of God in him, they are yes. Therefore, also through him is our amen to the glory of God through us. Now he who establishes us with you in Christ and anointed us is God, who also sealed us and gave us the spirit in our hearts as a pledge. And in today's text. But I call God as my witness to my soul that to spare you, I did not come again to Corinth. 
Not that we lord it over your faith, but are workers with you for your joy. For in your faith, you are standing firm. Chapter 2, but I determined this for my own sake, that I would not come to you in sorrow again. For if I cause you sorrow, who then makes me glad but the one whom I made sorrowful? This is the very thing I wrote you, so that when I came, I would not have sorrow from from those who ought to make me rejoice, having confidence in you that my joy would be the joy of you all. For out of much affliction and anguish of heart, I wrote to you with many tears, not so, so, not so that you would be made sorrowful, but that you might know the love which I have especially for you. Let's pray together. Father God, we are so thankful, so grateful to be able to gather this morning, um, fellowship together, to love one another, um, God, to worship you, to hear from you. Father, as we look at, at what you have given us today, Realize that in this room, Father, there are two groups of people. There are those who know you, whose joy is found in their union with Christ and fellowship with brothers and sisters in this body. And there are those who do not know you, who seek joy and happiness and pleasure in the things of this world, not knowing the true joy that comes from salvation found in Christ alone. And so, God, I pray that today, You speak to all of us, those who know you, those that are far from you. God, you reveal our hearts to us. You show us the things that you want us to know um, to make our joy fuller, more complete in you. And we will give you praise for all of that. We love you. Praise all in Jesus' name. Amen. So, verse 23. Take a look back. What's going on is, is in verse 23, Paul is appealing to God as a witness as to his motive for sending a letter instead of visiting. And I'm going to tell you, I read a lot of things on this, and many of the scholars I read believe that Paul is swearing an oath right here. Right? And it seems that way, as if Paul is saying, look, with God as my witness, I swear to you, I didn't come and visit for this reason. And they'll point to things that we see like in chapter 11 where he says, I swear I do not lie as evidence that Paul is swearing an oath. But I got to tell you, I completely disagree with them. I do not think that Paul is swearing an oath at all. Now, my translation, New American Standard, if you look look back at verse 23, my translation says, but I call God as witness to my soul, that preposition to. And I'm telling you, it's it's a poor preposition there. It's a poor translation into English. Some of your versions, looking at it, for instance, if you have the ESV, it probably says against my soul which I think is an even poorer translation of that preposition. Some of you would have on or upon, which is actually a great translation because in the Greek, what's going on there, it needs to be one of those two, on or upon. It may seem like, why are you telling us? It's not that really, it's really not that important of a thing. But it is important because what we have to remember that's going on in this verse is Paul, Paul is not arguing that he is right and therefore swearing an oath because God's going to agree with him that he's right. That's not what's happening. I don't think this verse is about swearing an oath at all. It's about Paul speaking from a transformed heart and a spirit that cares for the Corinthians. Right? So he's not, he's not swearing anything. He just has a transformed heart. He's communicating that. He's not saying I'm right. He's saying I'm righteous because of Jesus. That's what he's doing. And he's saying I'll be judged that way. My righteousness will be judged according to they. And I say that because of what you guys studied last week in verses 20 to 22. 
And it's a lot to go back and read, but, on the, but he says, I call God as my witness to my soul. I'm sorry. Verse 20, for as many as are the promises of God in him, they are yes. Therefore also through him is our amen to the glory of God through us. He who establishes us with you in Christ and anointed us as God, who also sealed us and gave us the spirit in our hearts as a pledge. And in those verses, what Paul's doing, remember back to last week, is he's elaborating on this positional righteousness and the progressive sanctification that has occurred and is occurring in the life of the Corinthian believers, right? And it's happening through the power of Christ and by the work of the Holy Spirit. And it's on the heels of that. It's on the heels of their confirmation of God's seal on them that Paul appeals to the testimony of God on his behalf as well. Again, he's not promising an oath. Um, This week, I got to sit with a young scholar He's unpublished. Well, he's published one thing, but his mom and I are the only ones that have ever read it. But I had a, I had a chance this week to sit, talk through some of this with Cooper. And I was talking about these verses. This is what Cooper said. I think it'll be on the screen. He told me, he said, it stands to reason that Paul's appeal to God's witness upon his soul is a reference to God's active participation in and passive observation of Paul's transformation a transformation out from which was born righteousness, wisdom, prudence, patience, and other virtues that are maximized in the, in the apostles' pastoral capacity. If you want to have an entertaining lunch someday, take him to lunch. Um, the point of it, the point of it is this. Paul is not inviting God's judgment of his actions with respect to the church at Corinth. Instead, he's referencing God's judgment of him as a follower of Jesus. It's a totally different thing. And in doing so, this is, this is Paul's line of reasoning with the Corinthians. He's saying, should God judge me favorably? Right? This is Paul saying this. If God would judge me favorably, which God does because Paul identifies with Jesus, says then, then his actions taken in regard to the church at Corinth should be trusted as having come from a genuine and faithful spirit confirmed by God, commissioned by Christ, and sealed by the spirit. That's what Paul's doing. He's not swearing an oath at all. The other thing he's not doing here is is he's not trying to invoke some type of uh, apostolic pardon, right? Uh, He's not trying to brush stuff under the rug. He's not standing back and saying, look, only God can judge me. He's not doing that at all. He's not trying to brush off some criticism in one of those ways. He simply, in this verse, is summoning God as witness of his transformation, and that's the validation for his actions. Not swearing upon God, saying God has witnessed the transformed life that I have, and that's validation for what I did. And we also see in this verse Paul's motive for writing, right? He says to spare the Corinthians. In, in this same book, a little bit later on in chapter 13, Paul references this. In 13.2, we see Paul arguing or warning them about this or during his painful visit. 13.2 says, I've previously said when present the second time and though now absent, I say in advance to those who have sinned in the past and to the, all the rest as well, that if I come again, I will not spare anyone. So he's already warned them that if he comes again, he won't spare anyone. But what, what I want you to see is Paul's trying to explain in this letter how he wants to avoid further sadness with them, right? He doesn't want there to be more sorrow and more sadness between him 
and the believers at Corinth. He wants them to spare them pain. He wants to spare them sadness. So instead of visiting, he writes a letter to give them time to change. And I think Paul sees the wisdom in not visiting, right? He doesn't want to go right back and give the same people the same advice about the same change. Our Kent Hughes, our Kent Hughes said this about Paul not visiting. He said, it's far better to have written a severe letter than to show up with the lash. And Paul says, I'm willing to show up this way, but I'm going to do it in a better way. I'm going to write a letter. And I want to say this letter, sometimes people deem it as like a sign of personal weakness on Paul's part. He's not willing to confront someone face to face. That's not what's going on. Paul's not being passive aggressive by writing a letter instead of confronting people. He's already told him he would do that. Instead, what he's doing, showing us is a heart of a pastor. Showing the heart of a pastor who's concerned for the spiritual welfare of the church. And that's why he writes. His delay in coming has one, one purpose in mind, to give them time to repent. And so his intent to spare them shows his desire to give them that space. He wants their faith to grow. He wants to give them time to repent instead of lording his faith over them, which is what we see in verse 24. Paul says, not that we lord it over your faith, but are workers with you for your joy, for in your faith you are standing firm. So again, the beginning of verse 24, we see Paul respecting the Corinthians' freedom as fellow believers. He doesn't want to have, he's not trying to exercise some type of dictatorial control over them. Instead, he wants to work with them. And, and this, this verse is showing us Paul's, Paul's own understanding of, of the use of his authority as a teacher and a leader. Right? We see his heart in this. He's careful here to describe his work as an apostle. He knows he's not their apostolic master. Right? He's working with them for their joy in Christ. Now, now look, he could take that approach. Um, he could have taken a dictatorial approach. He could have... He could have done that and produced compliance, but that's not what he wants. That's not what he wants. This is just compliance. Paul wants obedience that comes through faith, and it's obedience from faith that what he desires most here. Uh, plus, we know, Paul knows, that that type of control, that type of domination was not the way of Christ. It was not the way Jesus did things. And we who stand in his stead should not do those things either. Peter references that in 1 Peter chapter 5. So Paul, simply trying to reassure or assure the Corinthians that he's their fellow worker. He writes this letter. It's what he wants them to know. He's not working against them. He's not working over them. Again, R. Kent Hughes made an interesting observation about the way Paul's going about this. He says, Paul is like his master who is not slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. And we see Paul's heart in this letter. That is it. I'm not slow to come. I want to give you an opportunity to repent. In the second half of verse 24, Paul does a little bit of explaining um, what he means by the word spare. Because that word, to spare you, on the surface sounds pretty domineering. I mean, that's a pretty hard word. Paul wants them to know, look, I'm not writing this letter to judge you, right? That's why he writes in here, we are workers, Sylvanus, Timothy, and I, we are workers with you for your joy because Paul knows their faith is a gift from God and therefore, ultimately, the Corinthians are subject to no one but God, not to Paul. And so he communicates that with them. 
We know he knew that their deepest sense of joy was, was found when believers are one with the will of Christ and in tune with the Spirit. We're going we're gonna to come back to that in a minute. Keep that, keep that on the stove in your head. Deepest sense of joy, our deepest sense of joy is found when we are one with the will of God. Paul understood that the church, listen now, that the church should be the center of the highest type of joy. Let me say it again. Paul knew, understood that the church should be the center of the highest type of joy, which is fellowship among Christ, fellowship in Christ among people consecrated to his purpose. Begs a great question. Is First Baptist Church the center of your highest type of joy? Is this church the center of your highest type of joy? And I'm going to tell you, if the answer is no, there's something in your heart that you need to deal with. We'll come back again to get with that in a moment or two. Take a look at verse 1, chapter 2. It says, but I determined this for my own sake, that I would not come to you in sorrow again. So it's interesting that Paul never says in this letter exactly what happened, right? I mean, we know from the two letters that have been preserved that we have, we have some clues as to maybe what went on. I mean, we know, we know the, the Corinthians, man, they had problems in the church, problems with adultery, problems with incessant arguing, problems with di disruptions in worship, problems with lawsuits among believers. Um, plus, there's this group of false, false teachers, these super apostles that we'll read about um, a little bit later on in this letter who are causing problems for Paul. They're questioning his actions and authorities. It also seems from the verses that are coming up in week, next week that, that there's somebody, there's at least one person in the church that is publicly challenging Paul or publicly challenged Paul during his last visit. And so Paul delays this visit because he doesn't want to visit them again if it simply means revisiting the same hurtful things that went on last time. Verse 2, he goes on with this. He says, for if I cause you sorrow, who then makes me glad but the one whom I made sorrowful? I mean, Paul's rhetorical question here reiterates the point that his ministry is to work with the Corinthians for their mutual joy. And that's what this, what this is about. Um, many of his letters, I actually read one of them from Philippians, but many of his letters, Romans, 1 Thessalonians, those letters describe the joy and the encouragement that he received from other Christians at different times. And what that meant to him, I mean, the steadfast faith of these different Christians in these different places constantly encouraged Paul to continue in his efforts. And I, and I understand that. I want to tell you, church, I want to thank you, first of all, but I want to tell you encouraging words that, that you spoke to me either in cards or in person last month. Um, man, that, that kind of encouragement is fuel for persevering in the ministry. It really is. Um, encouragement is always a shot in the arm. Conversely, unwarranted criticism is an absolute gut punch. And I know that as well. And that's what Paul is experiencing here. So he says, you know what? I'm not going to visit again because I don't want to cause sorrow. Paul is not one that takes some type of sadistic pleasure in revisiting these people and disciplining them over and over. No, he loves them. Right? And because he loves them, he chooses to write this letter. His joy, he says, his joy comes from their joy. 
because their joy comes from their union with Christ. And that's what he desires. His life is linked to theirs. His life's linked to theirs in joy and sorrow, just like our lives are linked to yours in joy and in sorrow. That's why we weep with those who weep and we rejoice with those who rejoice because our lives are linked together. And Paul's love for them, is, that's what he wanted to give them. More than, more than direction on how to correct things, Paul wanted to give them love. He also wanted them to resolve the issues among themselves because, again, ultimately their faith stood on God, not on Paul's efforts to reform them. He goes on in verse 3. He says, this is the very thing I wrote you so that when I came, I would not have sorrow from those who ought to make me rejoice, having confidence in you all that my joy would be the joy of you all. Once again, Paul references this painful letter that we don't have. But the thing I want to point out in verse 3 is, again, Paul reiterating how his joy depends on the spiritual condition of the Corinthians. Right? I want you to hear that, church. I'm going to say our joy, your pastors, is tied to the spiritual condition of First Baptist Church. I don't know if you've ever stopped to think about that, how our joy is tied to the spiritual condition here. Let me talk about it for a minute or two. I read, I read somewhere last week. I went back. I read a lot of things. I went back and tried to find it, and I could not find this anywhere. But I read somewhere last week, one of the people said that joy is not the opposite of sorrow, right? Joy is not the opposite of sorrow. He said joy is the opposite of sin, I think there's a lot of truth to that. I mean, I haven't had time to fully process that in every situation in my life, but of the things I have thought of, I keep coming back to, man, there's a, there's a lot of wisdom in that. Um, listen, joy, joy is not simply a synonym for happiness. And they, they kind of overlap a little bit, um, but it's not simply a synonym. And I know that, I know that, because people do all kinds of things to try to make them happy and they never find joy, right? They're always chasing things to make them happy, but they never have joy. And the reason for that is you can never find joy by seeking it. Fun, you can find. Pleasure, you can find. True joy, you can never find by seeking it. And it's because true joy is a fruit of the spirit, not a byproduct of pleasure. True joy comes from God not from us doing things and finding pleasure in it. And so what that means is like Paul in the Corinthians, my joy is tied to your joy because if there's unconfessed, unrepentant sin in my life or, you, or your life, true, true joy isn't possible because true joy is found in our union with Christ. This is what Paul is talking about here. Sin, you know, breaks the harmony between us and one another because it breaks the harmony between us and God. I mean, we, we can't be correctly united in Christ if there's a sin issue. And if we can't be united in Christ, we can't share true joy. And that's what Paul wants to share with them. And it's because joy, listen, true joy expresses and is found in relationship, in communion, and in experience with Jesus. Because that's where it's found. That's how we'll share it. And Paul knows this. So he writes this letter. 
and he trusts that the Corinthians are going to address the sin issues that are taking place so that when he does come, together they can experience the joy in Christ. It's rooted only in Christ. And in verse 4, he says, For out of much affliction and anguish of heart I wrote to you with many tears, not so that you would be made sorrowful, but you might know the love which I have especially for you. Man, verse 4, we see, we see Paul's heart as he writes this painful letter, right? We see a pastor's heart. Listen, Paul knew this letter was going to hurt. He knew that, but he sent it anyway. In chapter 7 of 2 Corinthians, Paul gives his reasons in more detail. Read this with me. He says, for though I caused you sorrow by my letter, I do not regret it, though I did regret it. For I see that my letter caused you sorrow, though only for a while. I now rejoice, not that you were made sorrowful, but you were made sorrowful to the point of repentance. For you were made sorrowful according to the will of God, so that you might not suffer loss in anything through us. For the sorrow that is according to the will of God produces a repentance without regret, leading to salvation, but the sorrow of the world produces death. For behold, what earnestness this very thing this godly sorrow has produced in you, what vindication of yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what avenging of wrong. In everything you demonstrated yourselves to be innocent in the matter. So although I wrote to you, it was not for the sake of the offender nor the sake of the one offended, but that your earnestness on our behalf might be known to you in the sight of God. Paul's reprimand was aimed at securing a changed heart in the Corinthians. And he knew it was going to cause sorrow, but he hoped, as we just read, it would cause godly sorrow because godly sorrow leads to repentance. And that's why in verse 4, he says, look, my motive for doing this is love. It's funny, Chris came in my office this morning. He said, how's it going? I said, man, this is, this is a lot. And he said, well, don't forget the fact, this is just a letter about Paul loves these people. I'm thinking, well, we could be done in 30 seconds. I could stand up and say, hey, Paul loves them. You guys have a great day. But he's right, right? That's his motive. And he tells them that his motive is love. And what I want to tell you is what Paul understood. Sometimes the most loving thing a person can do for a Christian brother or sister is to confront him or her with the truth. But confront him with the truth in love. And then the last thing I want you to see from verse 4, those words, affliction and anguish that Paul uses. Man, that's the language of a broken heart. Paul did not write this letter to restore his reputation. That's not what's going on. I'll confess, I do that. There are times I shoot emails out because I feel like I've been wrong and I'm going I'm to get myself back on the pedestal I believe I'm supposed to be on. Or I'll shoot an email out to somebody because I think I'm about to knock you off the pedestal that you think you're on. That's not what's going on with Paul. He's not interested in either one of those things. I have a lot to learn from Paul. He's not trying to restore his reputation Right? He wants to restore fellowship, fellowship that only comes through repentance, which this is all about. And make no mistake, I said it earlier, he could have absolutely flexed his apostolic muscle and commanded obedience, but instead he, he ministered in love. That's what he chose to do. And the love he ministered with is a love that comes only from Christ. And so, so far through this letter, we've seen a lot, Right? Uh, we've seen the situation in Corinth has gone from bad to worse. 
Uh, the church is torn between this party division. There are people in the church that are denying Paul's authority, denying his character, making matters worse. When he paid a visit, that visit just made problems worse, and it broke Paul's heart. And then through tears, he decided to write a letter, a very painful letter, because I knew another visit was only going to hurt them, and it was only going to hurt him. So how do we apply this? Right? You guys know, you're here, you're here Sundays. Chris always has two or three applications. I had 12. I did. I had 12. I cut it down. I cut it down to just a couple. I thought 12 was too many. Because the truth of the matter, I think there are a lot of practical applications for our lives, though, from, from, from Paul's actions here, what he chose to do and why he chose to do it. One of the things practically... Maybe I'm just preaching to myself, but I wrote down, we have to be careful about reading between the lines. That's a little bit of what's going on here. People have chosen to read between the lines. Oh, he didn't show up. It must mean this. Oh, he's not doing it. It must mean that. Um, we need to be really, really careful about reading between the lines. We need to not always look for some ulterior motive or some sinister motive um, when things don't turn out our way, Right? doesn't turn out the way you want it to. It doesn't mean somebody's at work against you. Maybe it just didn't turn out your way. We don't always need to look that direction like something's going on. Um, I think another practical application from this is that, listen, if, if someone has proven himself or herself faithful in the past, then don't be quick to listen to accusations brought up by other people. If someone has proven themselves to be faithful, don't be so quick to listen to accusations brought up about them by an outsider. I had nine more practical ones, but I'm going to jump to the spiritual one. I think this is the most practical application of the day, and it's this. Do you know true joy that is only found in union with Christ? Paul's, Paul's talking about right? this joy is shared together. Do you know true joy? is only found in union with Christ? Or are you chasing the next thing to try to, to try to find new joy or try to find joy? Chasing a career, chasing a relationship, chasing an activity because you feel like joy is at the end of one of those roads. And I'm asking you to really think about that, right? And, and, and the truth of the matter is you're sitting there listening to me. You know, you know right now if your greatest joy is experienced with other believers because of a shared union with Christ, right? You can look in your own heart and say, yes, it is, or no, it's not, right? And just listen, it, if you're like, well, no, I can't. Well, let me ask it another way. Do you want to be here more than anywhere else because of the shared joy we have together in union with Christ and fellowship together? Is FBC the center of your highest type of joy, which is fellowship with Christ with other believers? And there are two, maybe there are three answers to that question. Hopefully the answer to that is yes, right? My true joy is found in Christ, especially when I'm in fellowship with other believers, right? Because we experience that together. And if your answer to that is yes, my true joy is found in Christ and Christ alone, then I'm telling you in a few minutes when the band comes up, worship team comes up for, for uh, response time, man, you need to thank God and worship. 
I, you have every reason to thank God and to worship if your answer to that question is yes. Maybe your answer is no. Right? And again, I'm just going to tell you, you know whether or not it is. So you need to be honest with yourself. You need to be honest with God. My true joy is not found in my relationship with Jesus. I can't walk out of here without talking to someone. I can't. Your joy is wrapped up in something of this world. That's a problem. But I think there's a third answer. Right? And look, I'm going to be perfectly honest. There are some in this room, your answer is yes, praise God. Right? There are some in this room, your answer is no. Which I say, God, give them the gift of faith. But I think a lot in this room, your answer might be sometimes. Yeah, sometimes it's wrapped up at First Baptist. But sometimes it's wrapped up somewhere else. But your answer would be, my true joy is found in Jesus and fill in the blank. Right? Jesus in this, man, I'm really happy. Right? And if that's where you're at, what I want to tell you, what you're really saying is, Jesus is not able to give you more joy than those things. That's a really low view of Jesus. You don't think Jesus can bring you more true joy, the only true joy. Other things can. It's a really, really low view of Jesus. And if that's where you're at, sometimes you need to do it repent. Right? Repent. And listen, we, every, every Sunday we give an opportunity to repent, to come down, pray at the altar, to repent. And, and I, think, I think sometimes we hear that and we think, well, the purpose of repentance is for me to be better, and so I'll stay here. No, the purpose of repentance is not for you to be better. The purpose of repentance is Jesus. You repent because of who he is. You don't repent because of what you're going to become. We repent because Jesus is God. That's why we repent. That's the only reason we repent, not because I'm going to become a better person if I do this today. No, we repent because of who he is and what he's done for us. And so I'm going to invite the worship team to come back up. Listen, there may be other reasons to respond, right? Maybe, maybe there's something you just want to come and leave at the altar. Uh, maybe you want to talk to, to me or Chris or Dylan about baptism, about becoming a part of this church family. Um, maybe you're, maybe, maybe in being, being honest with yourself right now, you're like, yeah, the answer is no. I'm finding joy in all kinds of things of this world, and Jesus is not on that list. And you're like, something's got to change. And if that's you, I invite you to come down. We would love to, to sit with you, make a time to sit with you and to talk about that, okay? If you would, stand with me. Worship team will come. We'll pray together. Father, again, we of all people are so blessed to be able to to come and, and, and to worship you together together to open your word to learn together what it is that you want us to know how you want to change us God I thank you for I thank you for Paul thank you for Paul's heart as a pastor that loves his church loved this church loved them so much they stayed away to give them time to repent. But ultimately, ultimately, God, so that when he came back, 
when he saw them again, they could live together in fellowship because of the union they share, Jesus, with you. Lord, I thank you for what you've done in our lives. Thank you for what you've done in my life. God, I pray that right now, that your spirit, God, that you would be wrestling with people's hearts right now and that you would win. They would not be able to walk out of this room today knowing that sometimes they find joy in you or that never do they find joy in you. God, work in their hearts for your glory. We love you. This is all in Jesus' name. Amen.